Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today, our year is 1991, and we're talking about two stories by Alice Munro from her collection, Friend of My Youth, the title story and Minnesotan. Uh, I've got two guests for this episode as well, Alex Higley, uh, who's the author of a short story collection, Cardinal, and uh, the novel Old Open. He co-hosts the I'm a Writer But podcast with Lindsay Hunter. And Willie Fitzgerald, whose fiction has appeared uh, in many places, including uh, Joyland and Prairie Schooner and other places. Uh, he's a graduate of the Michener Center for Writers and is currently the Marie Sabusawa Fellow at American Short Fiction. Uh, and I'm having a difficult time summarizing these stories. As anyone knows about Alice Monroe's stories, they're very, very dense with plot. I'll do my best. Um, they both have a framing device where there's a character who's investigating another person's life. In Friend of My Youth, this character is thinking about and imagining into the stories that her dying mother has told about these uh, two Presbyterian sisters that the mother lived with when she was a young woman. One of the sisters gets engaged to a man, and then before they marry, it comes out that the other sister is pregnant with his child. So the pregnant sister marries the man, and all three of them live in the sister's family house together. The one who got pregnant has a series of pregnancies that never result in a living child, and the unmarried sister, Flora, does all the chores and looks after the sickly sister and the man. And then the married sister dies, and the man marries the nurse that came to look after her at the very end of her life instead of marrying Flora. The new wife makes a lot of changes in the house, and uh, Flora is more or less driven out. And the framing device of this story is that the narrator and the dying mother have two very different interpretations of what the meaning is of those facts. And then the story ends with a paragraph that's otherwise disconnected from any of that, uh, that we'll discuss a lot about early Scottish Presbyterians excommunicating each other from their churches. And then the second story, Menasetang, is about an author standing character doing research on 19th century poet. And the story travels back to that woman's time. Her name is Almida. Um, She's living a solitary, restrained, sort of poetic life in the house that her family leaves when they all die. 
Um, and one night she's woken up by the sound of a drunken man beating his wife. And Almeida thinks that the woman is being murdered in the street outside her house. Uh, she kind of falls asleep. She doesn't go and help, but she thinks about it. Um, in the morning, she goes out and sees that the woman is lying on the ground. And she goes for help to her neighbor. And the neighbor sees that the woman is only drunk. Uh, and he wakes her up and sends her back home. And there's a moment where uh, where Almeida could pursue a romance with the neighbor, but instead she feels a powerful religious and artistic kind of inspiration to write a poem about the whole world. And she takes a lot of laudanum and walks through the spilled grape jelly that she was making. It's, it's spilled on the floor. Um, it's an amazing scene. And the author standing character who's doing research on her life finds her grave at the end of the story. On to our conversation. I hope that's everything you need. Willie, you are the one who chose these stories, and I yes. hear that you are kind of a Monroe expert. You know a lot about Alice Monroe. I, I'm a recent uh, uh, Monroe expert. In my last semester of grad school, I read all of her stories in published order, um, kind of as like a whole project. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get all the way through it, um, but I have kind of bounced around. There's a great biography of hers called Writing Her Lives, the sort of Alice Monroe. It's like a biography through her fiction. So um, I don't know if I'm an expert, but okay. I am pretty, I'm pretty deep. Yeah, I would say I'm waist <laughs> deep. I don't know if I'm like up to my eyeballs in it, but yeah. Uh, so I can kind of, I thought it might be cool to kind of context just like give a brief interview and kind of contextualize where she is when she publishes these stories kind of in her career, which might be cool. I would love to know more about that because these yeah. stories, like Alex and I were just talking about how every time we ever read Alice Monroe stories, we feel like, like they're all kind of, they have a family resemblance, not that they're all the same, but they're all kind of like speaking to similar kinds of themes and stuff. And then whichever one we read most recently is like, except that one. Mm. That one really stands out. That's really unique. Even yeah. with that context, these two felt incredibly uh, powerful and unique. And it um, really made me reassess how much of a genius she is. Mm. It it raised the bar on my understanding of what she's doing. Yeah. I, I think there is a sense when we like think about Monroe in the general that like because even for me, a lot of these stories kind of blur together because they're all kind of set in the same place. And they're like, she is kind of endlessly creating iterations of her sort of hometown in this part of Western Ontario where she grew up with a few like very notable exceptions. Some stories set in British Columbia, a couple set in Australia. Um, and if like, there's a famous story called Miles City, Montana, where she's obviously in Montana, but so it has the a tendency to sort of like bleed together in the mind a little bit. Um, and so I think that's that. I, it kind of masks because the subject matter is often very similar. I feel like it really tends to mask just the level of like technical mastery and really like formal weirdness that a lot of these stories achieve, especially with regard to like time and moving through time and scope. Um, but what was really interesting in reading a lot of her work, well, all of her work, all of her books in order is that the formal kind of strangeness doesn't come in until relatively what we'd think of as like mid to like mid career, 
She doesn't publish her first book until she's 37 years old. Um, she's publishing a lot as a young, uh, she has a, a few stories published every like couple of years when she's in her twenties, but it takes a really long time for her to get um, a book deal um, on a very like small Ryerson press, I think it's called. Um, and her first three books of stories, uh, which are Dance the Happy Shades, um, The Lives of Girls and Women, and Something I've Been Meaning to Tell You, are the stories in them actually feel very kind of conventional. Not always, but they're, they're often like very like, oh, this is a coming of age story. Like this is a story kind of about nostalgia. There are a couple of stories that you're like, yeah, this feels pretty kind of obvious. I know where this is going. Um, with friend of mine, friend of my youth, and I pronounce it a uh, minute. Uh, I've already forgotten. Um, How do you pronounce it? Yeah, I was, I was going <laughs> to let you go first on that. Yeah, yeah. Minnesotong. Let's just say Minnesotong. Who cares? I think it's Minnesotong. Minnesotong. Um, that's what I said, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what we're seeing here is uh, Monroe in, um, she has an enormous license to do basically whatever she wants. She's been sort of certified by Canada, certainly, and starting with her book that is two before this, The Moons of Jupiter, um, she has a first read contract with The New Yorker. Um, and there's an editor there named Charles McGrath, who is incredibly encouraging and is also very involved and Monroe really trusts him. Um, but she has basically a blank check to get like as buck wild as she wants. And so like, I feel like there's this thing where we talk about Alice Monroe, we're like, how does she do it? And the simple answer is that she's a genius. And the slightly less simple answer is that she was like bulletproof when you're reading a lot of these stories that feel a lot of the stories that we know are, are kind of her later and mid period pieces where she really is just like, I'm Alice Monroe. So like, I'm just going to write a story that's told entirely in letters, which is a wilderness station, or I'm going to write like a 90 page short story that goes all over the place about like a bunch of kids finding a dead body and a nursemaid and all these different things. And that's love of a good woman. And she's like, and I'm going to publish it in the New Yorker. And they're just going to print a 90 page short story of mine. So, I love it when writers just get better. Like yes. when they, when they get permission and then they really make something big with it instead of sort of stop. Like, I mean, we all know writers that just stop trying once they feel like they've achieved that level of bulletproof. Yeah. Um, and I just, I love seeing how much that's not true of her. Especially what Willie describes story to story or kind of like across Monroe's work, I think is reflected within each story that we're going to talk about today. As far as the strangeness is kind of layered and hidden and you could fully read these stories and miss a lot of the strangeness and it, they both would work. I think you could miss a lot of the formal strangeness and um, still get a lot from the stories and all of the formal daring and structural daring is completely counterbalanced by the nature of the sentences being so stark, plain, absolutely knock you on your ass. Good. Um, but never showy. And that kind of counterbalance, I think exists within the stories, but also across her work. It's the kind of thing that, um, in memory, which she's often dealing with, there's that kind of blur where you're like, how did that happen? And it happened because 
there's no, there's no showiness. There's no easy signpost to, to what she's doing until you go about back and break down structurally what's really happening. It's kind of staggering. So I was thinking about that plottiness, that thing that, that does make the story really rewarding at a first read or at any read. There's a part where um, in Nina Sitang, um, she talks about curiosity and kind of what's necessary to feel curiosity um, that there's a certain amount that you have to ignore about reality in order to become curious about it. And I was thinking that both of these stories, to me anyway, had a much more, like she was much more engaged with religion in these stories than I had seen her. Mm. And it really, it really changed my understanding of how much she's writing about religion or a religious framework for how to see the world in general. Um, I hadn't realized that and somehow these stories made me understand that differently and i want to talk about that more later Mm. but um just for now um i think that her understanding of curiosity as something that has a spiritual or religious meaning um and has to do with both engaging with the world and denying it in a way um that that felt like like her plotting is coming from that depth inside her as a person. It's not just like she read Save the Cat, you know? Mm. Like she just deeply is drawing something out of the reader by making them want to turn the page and figure out what's going to happen in the next paragraph. And then both provide the answers to whatever question she raises, which makes it satisfying. And then also always confuse and baffle and change directions and zig when you expect her to zag. It speaks to what kind it speaks to what she makes possible for these mostly rural characters, at least in the stories that we're talking about today. I think the complexity, the alternate futures and histories and other fictional realities that are made possible within the stories speak to that that curiosity as well. And a kind of um, that's a kind of grace note to be able to include multiple lives for these people within the one structure of the story. I think I completely agree with you. There's, there's something just hugely um, spiritual about that. Yeah. I just want to just clarify for any listeners who haven't just read these stories that one of the things that you're talking about, Alex, is that the narrator of um, Friend of My Youth, for instance, she's imagining various outcomes of a person's life that her, she's heard her mother talk about, and she doesn't mm-hmm. know what this woman's actual life is like, mm-hmm. and neither does the mother. They both are making guesses about what this person's life was like mm-hmm. and they never find out the answer mm-hmm. so that's like one but they feel curious and it is meaningful to them to sort of to suppose what her life was like yeah i think one thing that you i mean all writers all good writers are like very attuned to the pleasure of reading but monroe monroe seems like hyper attuned to it like she um it's interesting after she kind of, so she goes to college, she only goes for two years, she meets Jim Monroe, who she marries, takes his name, they move out to Victoria, or to Vancouver, excuse me, and she kind of stops writing, she was writing as an undergrad, and she just reads voraciously, like that's the first part of her 
there's like uh, there's interviews with her friends during that time where it's like Alice had read every book that you could imagine. Like she was like a walking library. So she is a writer who is deeply attuned to readerly curiosity. And so her stories, and I think she's also very attuned to like, she knows how people read her own work because there's, there's a kind of a game with a Monroe story where you're like, okay, I've got a poet in colonial Canada. Like, why are we learning about this? Like, I don't know, but like, I'm going with you because like her, her writerly authority is so evident and it's so like expertly deployed at from the jump that you're like, okay, I'll just go with you. I'll kind of pay attention. And then she'll drop you down like layer by layer deeper into the story. And she doesn't stop doing that. Cause in, in Minnesota, like, it's like, Oh, and she makes grape jelly. And you're like, Oh, she makes grape jelly. Not a big deal. But that's like a load bearing image mm. that she is just like slipping by you often with the, just like a profusion of detail. She's such a, like a wonderful descriptive writer that you are. Oh, that was very ominous. Um, uh, for those of obviously listeners can't hear, but my uh, timed um, grow lights for begonias, not for any illicit substances. It's for uh, marijuana, guys. Yeah, Need. exactly. For for begonias, very much in scare quotes. Um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, just you were just, just talking about her readily authority. Yeah, and and her her understanding too of like what you come to a story for and what you're not prepared for just yet. She has a really good way of. Um, the stories don't seem plotty, but if you think about everything that happens in them, you're like, oh my God, there's a whole like, just like bounty of life in this, but it doesn't have the same sort of um, straight path through it. She kind of, yeah, just submerges you before you really notice it. Uh, and I just always, I think that's that's a very rare skill. So one of the things that I had, I had studied various ones of her stories, um, I guess in college and just various writing classes here and there in my life. And um, I think that people had talked a lot about how, how information is given that she just gives a very controlled flow of information. So you never have more information than you're basically going to use just to get to the next paragraph. Mm. Um, And one of the things that I was I guess it's sort of a trend that she started. It seemed to me like she started this trend of um, stories about women who do things for kind of no reason. Um, like I, I think she can get away with it. And I once wrote a tweet about this actually um, saying like, is this a real thing? Like, it seemed like such a trend of, from, you know, the 1970s, more or less the late 1990s books about women who, like get off a train at some random stop and marry the first man they see and then live with the consequences the rest of their lives, Mm. Um, which feels like kind of an Alice Monroe move. Mm. And so I asked Twitter in general, does this feel like reality to someone else? Because for me, I always feel like I'm constantly trying to do things like on purpose. I'm, I'm trying, you know, if I were in a boat, I'd have an oar and a pole and a sail and I'm always adjusting the sail and, you know, um, and when were you last in a boat though? 
Never. I've never been in a boat. Okay. Well, just saying, just pointing that out. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I have this feeling that one of the ways that she was influential is by kicking off a whole round of books, primarily by women about women in which people do things in a kind of aimless way that is confusing to me as a reader and as a human being. And I asked, and then a bunch of women replied saying, actually, this is a thing. It's very specifically the way that you feel if you weren't raised to expect that you'd have a lot of choices. And then all of a sudden you have a ton of choices and you're expected to make kind of morally sound decisions and it's kind of like, um, you know, if you're not even expecting to be able to choose your own wedding dress, let alone the groom, and all of a sudden you have to choose a college and a career or something, you know, that this feeling of aimlessness was actually a psychological state that a lot of women encountered in her generation, more or less. And so I thought, okay, I've settled this question. I have an answer for it, which is why did so many people do this? And I didn't really get an answer to the other part of my question, which is why is it so convincing when Alice Monroe does it? And I don't always find it so convincing when other people do it. But then reading these, I realized that she's talking about being Presbyterian. And it's just not a religion that I'm deeply familiar with. So I hadn't sort of picked up on these cues that she's talking about being inside a religion that where predestination of salvation is a big feature you know Hmm. that in some ways fate or the amount of our lives that we are not in control of um and that we sort of show our humanity by responding to rather than um by sitting in the boat with the pole and the oar and the sail and everything um that that's a whole model of being a person that is foreign to her characters and that in a way her focus on girls and women is obviously because she's just writing about the lives of girls and women, but also that there's a religious element to that helplessness compared to the state, like the power of society over the lives of these girls and women is analogous to a religious state of powerlessness in front of God. Hmm. And that seemed to me like something that jumped out from these two stories. Did that seem like, well, you know, <laughs> did it's you so, get a reading like that at all from these stories? Catherine, I didn't, but <laughs> I loved hearing that. I, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> very, I mean, cause religion does play a, uh, I feel like it plays more of a role in her, especially in the lives of girls and women, which was originally titled and up until very, very close to publication was titled real life. And there's a sort of famous, there's a story called baptizing in the last, she kind of um, uh, falls in love with this, this boy named Garnett French and uh, ends up leaving him has this moment literally in a kind of baptismal kind of motif where she decides that, Um, she's going to go off and she's not going to accept this sort of domestic role. Um, And so, yeah, her, it seems like religion is an inescapable 
harder for life, but I, I guess I hadn't connected that to the sort of um, these female characters all of a sudden being granted a huge amount of choice. And um, or is it that the sort of the idea of kind of Presbyterian predestination fate um, allows them to make those choices because like, Oh, my fate is my fate is predestined. So I'm just going to go do whatever. Or are you saying that they're rebelling against that? I am saying that there's that part in um, friend of my youth where uh, is that it's friend of my youth, right? Yeah. Okay. Where her mother is saying that this life that this woman, Flora is living where she lives in an unfinished farmhouse and never has sex and just does chores all the time. Um, that that represented freedom to women of her generation, of the mother's generation. Um, and that there's the, um, the, the daughter in that is just like, that's ridiculous. That's terrible. She should be, you know, allowed to have whatever modern type of freedom. And that there's a, like the story says, we each think of ourselves as free thinkers. We each think we're having our own thoughts, but there's these spores in the wind of ideas mm. that land in our brains. Um, that's just like, it's kind of just generational truth that you think that this represents freedom or that represents freedom. Um, and that it's just the ideas that are sort of in the air around you and that you feel like you're, what you're doing is free will but what you're actually doing is believing the things that everyone around you believes on who's, you know, more or less your age or whatever. Neither the mother nor the daughter nor Flora really actually have any control over their life. Well, or see, have any knowledge of their fate, which is almost entirely controlled by these external factors that like the main story of each person's life is mostly in responding to things that are completely outside of their control. I find this reading totally fascinating because I never would have arrived at it. And it's, it's like imposing a framework on my existing understanding in an interesting way. The one thing that I think is interesting, Catherine, maybe to add what you're saying, because I, the section you actually just pulled up is one I had talked about with Willie a couple of days ago. I said, I love this passage so much. And the, the sport passage, I said, it was maybe my favorite thing in Monroe. And, um, but we are getting, we are getting the mother, the mother in the story is being filtered to us through the narrator who is the daughter. And we're never just getting the mother and in the mother's words, right. We're always getting it filtered through the narrator who is the daughter and the daughter is very conscious of the mother's characterizations of the people in the mother's life who the mother may have chose to fictionalize if her life went differently and who the narrator is choosing to fictionalize in this story and who also regrets not maybe being able to fictionalize further in a novel that she didn't write. That all exists within the yes. story. I think I have that right. Yeah. And the... The spore paragraph to me was, I guess I would grant freedom. I would grant a kind of separate type of life to the narrator because she's the one telling the story. Um, and in my mind, she's choosing to characterize 
I think, I think it's a gesture towards her mother to align herself with her mother in kind of an easy way that she gets in the dream in the dream. Her mother forgives her easily. Oh, it's, you know, it's okay. I I know you would have come and talked to me sooner if you could, it's no problem. I think the same kind of easy alignment is taking place in that paragraph from the daughter towards the mother. Uh, You know, we get our, we get our ideas just like spores in the wind. You know, I'm this way because of that. You were too. It's an easy connection. In my mind, it's a, it's another moment of grace between them as family members. And um, I think your reading is more severe in a way that could probably be closer to what Monroe was intending, but I just, <laughs> I wouldn't, you know I'm what not I mean? Claim I'm doing what Monroe's. Uh, I, I just <laughs> think it's such I a, I don't know. I, I just, I think I had a little bit lighter reading on that particular paragraph. I, I like your reading. I think that that's also I definitely think that that's there because I, I think that there's that feeling. I mean, the mother is very much in the hands of fate because she's talking about the last period of her life where she had full use of her body, mm. right? That she she's kind of going into this household where there are these two sort of stern women. Um, and, uh, and then she thinks that she's going to go start this other sort of fruitful life. Um, but then... I guess dies of, of Parkinson's, right? Um, yeah. It doesn't say in the story, but that's what Monroe's real mother uh, died of. Yeah, and she is the sort of, um, she's the like the gravity well around which a lot of Monroe's life and stories, um, something I didn't know until, um, well, I, I guess I knew it through her fiction before I knew it in fact, is that Monroe did not go see her, she did not return home for her mother's funeral. So um, her mother was uh, Anne Chamney Laidlaw. Um, She was diagnosed with Parkinson's when Monroe was in, I think, either middle school or early high school. Um, And Monroe uh, went off to college and her younger sister, Sheila, stayed behind and kind of took care of her. And that's a dynamic sisters who has to take care of the parent is one that kind of replays in a couple different iterations throughout Monroe's um, uh, kind of stories. But yeah, this sense that she didn't go back. I don't think Monroe ever, she doesn't say like, Oh, this has haunted me, but um, Monroe like read a lot and was really invested in Gothic fiction. And like the mother is clearly this like haunting presence in Monroe's life. And she is constantly it feels like she's revising and trying to get closer and closer and closer to this woman that she kind of potentially like abandoned or she feels that she abandoned. It, it is this like electric charge in her sort of career. Doesn't um, she tell that story from the mother's perspective when there's a daughter that runs away and the mother is just searching and searching for her? That is in the trio of stories that were in Runaway. They yeah, appeared. yeah, that's it. Yeah, another, another Monroe flex. I think that's... That was a, it was like the summer 2003 New Yorker fiction issue. And it was just three Monroe stories. I think they were just like, all right, you can, I guess, just kind of have the magazine uh, for this week. Um, I could be wrong about that. Don't, uh, that, that might not be. No, that's exactly what happened. I'm positive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that, that's a great point. That's an inversion of that. That's a daughter that runs away. And yeah, the mother is, but the mother in that regard is she is a sort of 
if I remember correctly, she's like a failed actor who then becomes a radio journalist and she interviews people. So she, to me, feels more like Monroe. And that feels more like Monroe working through her relationship with her daughters, which I think were not always great. Um, because Yeah, because the daughter wrote that entire book saying my relationship with my mom is not always great. Yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> got it. Um, yeah, so... Oh. Sorry, can I ask one more question just about um, Presbyterianism and friend of mine? Please, I, I am not the authority. What did you make of the last paragraph where it's like, mm. it, it flies away from all those characters and just talks about the history of this religion where people are constantly excommunicating everyone else in the world from their own, yes. Do you this mind reading the, it aloud? Do you? Uh, yeah, I, I will read it aloud. Uh, with Please the, do. With the uh, note that my very, I have some thoughts, but my, my marginalia is just a square bracket and then a big question mark. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yes, you should tell us all about that question mark. Um, so, yeah, we've come to the end of the story um, that we sort of described a little bit of. And then there's a, there's a, a break, white space. Um, and then the Cameronians I've discovered are or were an uncompromising remnant of the covenanters, those Scots who in the 17th century bound themselves with God to resist prayer books, bishops, any taint of popery or interference by the king. Their name comes from Richard Cameron, an outlawed or field preacher cut down, soon cut down. The Cameronians, for a long time they have preferred to be called the Reformed Presbyterians, went into battle singing the 74th and 78th Psalms. They hacked the haughty Bishop of St. Andrews to death on the highway and rode their horses over his body. One of their ministers, in a mood of firm rejoicing at his own hanging, excommunicated all the other preachers in the world. That's the end of the story? Question mark? <laughs> um, uh, I, I, had a, I had a strange reaction. I love this ending. Love it. Yeah. I, I, I basically zone out for the entire paragraph every time I read it, except for the last sentence. And then the last sentence hits me every time. I think that the feeling that one person is right in their choice is what I pull from that last sentence. Mm -hmm. There's one, there's one correct way is kind of what I pull from that. And, every, <laughs> and then everyone else is wrong. And I've, I don't know. It just like rings out in the story to me in a certain way where you're, if you're thinking about any one of the characters, if you're thinking about Flora, Ellie, Robert, the narrator, the mother, they're making, they're making like big black and white choices throughout the stories. And I don't know, it just aligns with that in a way that I found perfect because it forces you back in. And I think you kind of naturally, feel for the mother in the story. At least I did. Um, a lot, a lot. Right. A ton. Right. And then you also feel for Flora, even despite like the, the alternate versions of Flora where you maybe would align yourself less with her. But I do think it's difficult to, <laughs> to single out the single per to single out the, the one person that you are hundred percent with in a way that the last line of the story would suggest that maybe is how the world works in a way that I really like. It's, it's almost like the thing that I'm saying you, you must do, we cannot do. 
do you think that that that, that was saying we must do it? Because I was thinking it was saying that these characters were doing that to each other. That in a way that when there was some big collision in their lives between paths of doing things, um, you know, that that sounds more trite than I mean. But like, no, no, no. I think something real at stake. Mm. They they had to excommunicate everyone who chose differently than themselves mm-hmm. from one another. Which, tr- which truly is what happens. Yeah. And it, it partly felt like, I mean, it just really influenced my reading to this, this idea that whether or not these people are practicing this religion, it's just the framework. It's like the glasses she's looking through all the time, whether or not the story is officially about, the ideas of like fate and predestination and this kind of hardness of judgment and um well the hardness of judgment is there regardless always no matter who you are reading it whether or not you bring in that religious aspect i think it would be impossible to read the story without that right i mean the hardness of judgment yeah, is like yeah. no, even I, I think- yeah And I just think that each of the characters, like, it's hard. It's hard for me as a person who doesn't feel conflicted the way that the narrator does to not feel sympathy for Flora. Sorry, that there was too many negatives in that sentence. The thing I'm trying to say is I don't feel conflicted the way that the narrator does. I feel a lot of sympathy for Flora. Mm. The story of Flora's life being sort of Job-like you know, like suffering is visited on her. Suffering is visited on her sister in a different way. And in some ways, suffering is visited on her by the actions of this this man, the husband, because he keeps on having sex with her and she keeps on having these disastrous pregnancies. And she's just like, her health gets worse and worse and worse. And then she dies. Um, and there are no children. And like, he never speaks. And the narrator kind of says something like that he never has a word to say for himself. And there's something, there's something biblical about the way that the sisters lives go Mm -hmm. and how much they are so close when they're young. And then the series of things that happen to them make them so hardened in the choices that they're making that they basically have to excommunicate one another in order just to live. Um, And it just feels like every single character ends up in this little silo of their own choices and unable to connect to anyone else, except Alex, as you said, there is a desire to connect with the mother to say, yes, I'm siloed in my own choices, just like you being siloed in yours that we're mm. each in our own like hardness. Mm. Um, mm. But that's similar and that there's something, there's a connection there. The, the narrator's like <laughs> would be passion for Robert too is such a strange note in the story where she talks about having an understanding of what it would mean to like feel desire for that kind of man or for him in particular that comes up. And it's such to me, like that's the kind of genius, like that's the kind of genius stroke. Like everything else we've talked about is fucking brilliant yes but to have that extra kind of layer of nuance and just life like yes this man has 
created all these problems for these women, this family, even for my mother in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because really Robert created the tenor of the relationship between the narrator's mother and the sisters. The only reason it has that kind of severity is because of the presence of the man. I mean, obviously they're a religious practice, but it would not be the same if he wasn't in the house. And still she is a humane enough narrator, a person like embodied enough in her own day to day that she can imagine having passion for him. And it's just like, to me, that was the moment where I was like, (laughs) this is just beyond that's, I can't imagine getting to that point as a writer that that extra layer is just so staggering to me. I agree. I also thought that it was like when it first happens that the the sister, one sister is engaged to the man and the other sister is pregnant by him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, is this going to turn out that she was raped or is this going to turn out that they're having like a, a love affair and it's never conclusively determined which one of those and in fact, when the narrator is describing her feeling of imagined passion for this man, part of it has to do with the phrase of like, he, it's like he did it to her. Yeah, like the exactly. Idea yeah. It's almost that whether it's consensual or rape, it doesn't matter because either way, it's, it's something that's just happening to her. That it's the man who's 100% responsible and is doing this. And that that idea is erotic to the narrator who is supposedly the most liberated of these characters and yeah. was like free to enjoy her life in whatever way. Um, again, I really have this feeling that um, it just became much stranger to me. Like the whole Monroe thing became stranger to me in reading this. Totally. Um Real quick, there's one paragraph I have to point out. I know we're going long on this one, but um, I'm just going to read a couple sentences because I have to read this. The Early on, it's like the second page of the story. She often spoke of the Ottawa Valley, which was her home. She had grown up about 20 miles away from grief school in a dogmatic, mystified way, emphasizing things about it that distinguished it from any other place on earth. Houses turn black, maple syrup has a taste no maple syrup produced elsewhere can equal, bears amble within sight of farmhouses. Of course, I was disappointed when I finally got to see this place. It was not a valley at all. If by that you mean a cleft between hills, it was a mixture of flat fields and low rocks and heavy bush and little lakes, a scrambled, disarranged sort of country with no easy harmony about it, not yielding readily to any description. And when I was going back through, I just thought like that, that is Monroe's like actual genius is everything she fucking writes is not yielding readily to any description. (laughs) Her genius is pulling it in and uh, maybe she made grape jelly or not, but here she is. And it's like, to me, (laughs) the thing that is so unteachable and un- on, you know, you can't reverse engineer what she's doing is she's able to create life lived in a way that is so rare. I think for a writer, it's just, you utterly believe these are real people despite a biblical nature, a biblical nature to their choices or situations. It's just, yeah, these yeah. are real people. These are real people. 
there is a way like the 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 final for me not to not to cling too tightly to that last section of um friend of my youth but there is the the thing i mean she's such a she's such a careful writer like in in terms of her um um just even sentence construction the thing for me what i take out of that reading is yeah there's this stuff about excommunicating each other and excommunicating feels like an incredibly um essential verb there because there's so much it, it, it that just feels like a, a very specific word choice but also is this little phrase that's dropped in the cameronians comma i have discovered comma are or were not so like at this point in her career, Monroe is very conscious of and very interested in the role of the writer and the historian and sort of like who gets to kind of speak and construct. And we see that a lot in the story, you know, um, there are these kind of competing versions that the mother tells the, the story of Flora and Ellie as though Flora is this sort of benighted woman who is a saint. Um, and then the narrator, um, tells a more complicated version of it. That is, it's like slightly more subtle, but it's also more cruel. She has this, I, I can't remember the exact phrase where it's like um, uh, the wicked flourish. Um, and then that's what, uh, sorry, that's what the mother describes in this sort of like, it feels very uh, almost like medieval. Like, yeah, like you said, Job-like. It's like, oh, it's all suffering, but you know, in the end her sort of purity and uh, saintliness are kind of confirmed. Maiden lady. Um, exactly. Maiden lady. Um, and then the narrator's version of it has this line. I see the bare beauty of the ending. I will contrive. Uh, she becomes crippled herself with arthritis, hardly able to move. It's not hard to see the double layers there of like, um, and Audrey Atkinson, the nurse who comes to kind of nurse her sister now takes over the full thing of the house. Um, and then there is this, we talked earlier about her kind of like submerging us down into story, but what is, I feel like harder and more impressive is when she gradually takes you out of it because she starts imagining, she's like, Oh, maybe I would go into the store where Flora worked and, God. you know, um, she might meet a man. She's using this sort of conditional, uh, kind of hypothetical descriptions. Um, she's kind of describing like, oh, uh, she might get an apartment. She might learn to drive. I might go into the store and find her. Um, but suppose I had gone into the store and then she does this incredible move here. Um, I imagine myself trying to tell her about, you know, what I know about my mother. This, and then there's a parenthesis. This is a dream now. I understand it as a dream. And we're back exactly where we started at the beginning of the story, which is sometimes I dream of my mother um, and her basically ascent out of story when she's like, Oh, I've, I've dropped you three levels deep. And now in the span of two pages, I'm going to bring you back up to the surface. And then she could leave you with the last line of the penultimate paragraph before that thing about the Cameronians. Um, and that's her mother changes the bitter lump of love I've carried all this time into a phantom, something useless and uncalled for, like a phantom pregnancy. That's a fine and I think thematically cogent like ending with this story. And again, that's where Monroe is like, 
guess what? Like I got you again. Like that's the end. We're not done. And now, <laughs> now I get to like reassert. I get to reassert my position as the sort of the writer, the historian. There is a sense of like, even the way she talks about creating story seems to be. It's never like, oh, I'm writing it in the moment. It's always like her looking back from 20 years later, being like, I can't believe I wrote it like that because it would be like this. And so there is a, a sense of endlessly revising the revision of the past. And that is part of what I think what you were describing earlier, Catherine, where like stories where it seems like a woman just shows up and weird things happen and like there's no real reason. Yeah. I think it's because this is maybe a kind of like a silly metaphor, but like, Monroe stories feel like they're like French pastry dough. You know, they're like, they're like, totally, like, yeah. like 120 layers. They're so, they're so dense with layers of like meaning an event that like, if you do read a story where like someone just shows up and weird things happen, that is pretty airy. You're just like, oh, okay. Like nothing is really here. But Monroe has the ability to disguise density. And if you just keep looking at it, you're like, wait, why is this so rich and like heavy? Because it doesn't yeah. look it. Why can, yeah, why can she get away with it? And it never works when other people try it or it never works as well. Let's just I, say. I really think it's, a, I honestly think it's the sentences too. Like, it's like, it comes down to sentences. Like I have all these fucking sentences. They're just like plain stark <laughs> sentences written down. I mean, some, it sounds so silly, but like the house was divided in an unexpected way. That is not a sentence that <laughs> I underlined it. I was just like, that's brilliant. It's brilliant. People don't write sentences like that in stories this complicated that are just this clear. And it sounds so silly to say, but it's just fl Flora was not present at the dance. It's devastating. I mean, because, yeah, be yeah. you know, you could, you could basically open to any page in the story and just pick one at random. And it's like, yeah, okay. That one too. Um, you know what there isn't is there isn't any archness. There's mm -hmm. no sense of um, like collusion with the reader against the characters, which I think is kind of like, mm. like if there were a Flora wasn't present at the dance from Jane Austen, let's say right. um, it would definitely be a little bit, at least a little bit making fun of Flora and the dance and in this actual case where Flora isn't present at the dance, it's just devastating. And you, Cause you, I think I feel that Monroe is somewhere between the narrator and the mother, like the actual, like yeah. where she's existing, maybe. I mean, she is the narrator in a very real way, but at the same time, you can feel, you can feel how much she sees these other people. I don't know how she feels about them, but she, she absolutely sees them. And you, we open talking about curiosity. She's just utterly curious about these people. The, 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 the care that goes into that hypothetical section at the end that, I mean, that, that hypothetical storefront section at the end is just staggering. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't get that just without having an enormous amount of care for this kind of character. I completely agree. Yeah. There is a, um, there's a line, I, I highlighted a line. She said this about, there's a story in, in a, in a book called the moons of Jupiter. And it's about uh, her working at a Turkey gutting factory. Um, and um, 
she just says, why it is, why is it interesting to me to make turkey gutting vivid? It just is. And there is this sense of sort of like, um, she is kind of like famously self-effacing and it seems like pretty genuine. Like she, she kind of, I think she's often compared to William Trevor for kind of this exact reason. Like you read an interview with Trevor and he's like, I don't really want to talk about myself. You're like, but you're like, you're the reason for the interview. Um, There is like, Monroe's a very intuitive writer and she knows that about herself. And so like there is, um, yeah, you never get the sense I'm going to embarrass myself. I, I assume it's Mavis Gallant. Is that how you say her last name? I actually don't know. I don't know either. I, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with Gallant because that sounds vaguely more French. Um, I love her. Not enough to know how to pronounce her last name, but there is, I, whenever I read her, there's always a sense of like, Oh, she's way ahead of her characters. Like she is kind of looking down on them and kind of poking fun at them sometimes. Yeah. Um, Monroe just seems like nakedly curious in the lives of her characters. And that is a sort of porousness and like empathy and lack of judgment that, um, yeah. Cause like only, only a writer like her could look at Robert Dean, I think is the, is the kind of the shitty guy in friend of my youth. And it'd be very easy to be like, what a villain that guy was, but oh, it's, totally. it's the, it's the curious and sort of like all time writer who can be like, yeah, but like, I'm curious about him. Like, what was he like? Like, what did he say? It seems like this kind of speaks to the very like Canadian nature of her as well. Like that to me is where it's like, Oh yeah, she's Canadian. Right. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Like these stories don't feel American in that way because of a certain type of there's cruelty in the stories, but they're not coming from, they're not coming from Monroe's relationship to the characters she's creating. There's absolutely cruelty in these worlds, but I don't know. I, there's a certain, I, I ascribe it to her being Canadian, which is like a simpleton idiot uh, pose, but I will keep it <laughs> and I will maintain it. So I actually wanted to talk about just one more thing about curiosity, which um, in the other story, uh, Minnesotan, um, that she, so she describes curiosity. I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me, but um, at first the character, this woman, Almeida, describes curiosity as something that is um, partly about seeing and partly about ignoring what you don't want to see. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the narrator of that one is also very curious because she's constantly trying to understand more about Almeida's life, which is entirely 100% before her time. And she's saying like, oh, is she, does she go by Mita? Does she go by Almeida? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And she's looking for answers for her questions in the world. As far as I can tell, Almeida never has opportunity to act decisively ever. She doesn't even move her bedroom when her parents die. She just keeps sleeping in the same bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and all her poetry is about um, basically things that just happened to her, like her siblings died, her parents died, and she's sad <laughs> about it. And she has this one opportunity to act decisively in her life when she hears a ruckus outside her house and um, she goes to sleep. Exactly. She refuses 
to act. Yes. She she doesn't go. She knows that somebody is murdering this woman outside her house and she doesn't go outside and stop it. And then she goes down in the morning and sees that the woman has been murdered and is just lying there in the road. And then she goes and gets her neighbor who's like maybe her boyfriend and um, not actually her boyfriend. Perspective. And well, exactly. But it's like, it's only becomes an actual possibility once he sees her in this kind of fluttered and vulnerable state. And, um, and then he wakes up the ostensibly murdered woman. Get up. Uh, she's just drunk and she wasn't murdered, but it's pretty clear that when he's yelling at her to go home, she's going to a violent home where she probably will be murdered soon. You know, it's, it's pretty clear that to me anyway, I don't know if you read it this way, but that Almeida's not wrong that this woman is in danger. It's just that the window of opportunity to act in her defense is larger than just that one night, but she still doesn't do anything. Right. She still doesn't act. What she does is she is overcome by inspiration to write a poem <laughs> that doesn't look away from anything. God, that is so right? good. I was dying laughing reading that part. <laughs> It's just so funny. I mean, oh my god! Yeah, she takes a lot of laudanum. Um, it's so good. Yeah. It's but so she she rejects the man. She doesn't want to go walk to church with him. Mm-hmm. It's a little note out front. Hears him come up. Checks the note. That I mean, I I thought of the story as like basically Monroe is digging herself a hole for the first and. I don't know, several pages because there's no way that should work. You're just like creating a poet and then you're summarizing the poems to open a short story. This should not work. I mean, it, it yeah. speaks to what Willie was saying about you're, you're, you're continuing to read because it's Monroe. I mean, obviously it's very well, it's very well written. It's very clear, but there's no way this story should work. And the fact that it does and the ending hits as hard as it does, it's almost like, it's almost like her saying like, yeah, I can kind of do this with anything. Like I, my attention is that strong. I don't know. It just seemed like such a flex, this story. I, I can't believe it hit me as hard as it did. The first couple of pages, I was like, is this honest to God about a poet? I don't know if I can do it. And then, (laughs) and then uh, I love it. I love this story. I utterly love it. Yeah. I, I have two thoughts. I, I don't want to lose the thread about like Almeida's agency. Yes. Go back. Sorry. I totally derailed um, that. Go back. Willie. No, 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 no. Because like, it is something that I, I think about. Um, it is, you know, it's another story about um, like writing and a writer's responsibility and like what they can sort of create and describe and witness. And yeah, there is like a sense of, it's also, this is like a, for like, for, for the, for the real Monroe heads out there, there's a bunch of like little tiny um, drops in this story that come. So there's a, a brief description of a man whose head is cut off at a piano factory. That's like one of the big incidents in a story called carried away. That's an open secrets. Uh, there's a thing about like a salt mine and uh, Monroe's second husband, this guy, Jerry Fremlin, uh, was a geologist and worked for a salt mine. And there's a great story that whose name I, I'm actually blanking on right now. 
that really involves going into a salt mine. And so like, it's weird to see her be like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to like just put a pin in that and then write a whole story around this man getting decapitated at a piano factory. And boy, do um, I love grape jelly. Boy, yeah, grape <laughs> jelly. I, yeah, I think this story and Friend of My Youth really feel in um, conversation to me both for their writerly stuff, for, for the sort of like history and imagined history, like the, the writer as someone who can basically breathe life into snippets and incomplete information and what the role of that person is. But they also really feel to me like stories about, um, like you said, Catherine, like women laboring under and in a society where there is really no true chance of like agency in a way, you know, like. Um, there certainly is a way that Almeida could have intervened uh, in the life of this this woman. Um, but there's also, I got the sense reading it that like the world she's describing for these women like always comes to ruin for them. Like there, there, it just feels like there's so there's really truly no way that. You know, you either end up, especially when you look at these stories, you know, side by side, it's like you can end up ruined by miscarriage, betrayed by a husband, or you can end up in an abusive, drunken relationship, or you can wander around in a bog and die of tuberculosis. Like there are not a lot of like outlets for women um, during either of these times. And it's kind of, it feels like a sort of meta indictment of just like, it's not demonstrably better in like 1860 than it was in, or sorry, it's not demonstrably better in the time of friend of my youth, which I, I think would probably yeah, be like yeah. 1920. I about 19, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier. I can't really oh, I would have thought a little later, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, poor in math um, and time. <laughs> um but so it, it's striking to me that like, yeah, the, the time of Manisa Tung and the time of Friend of My Youth, it's like, it's bad. Just like full stop. There's um, a there's a sentence in there where the doctor is prescribing her with like nerve tonic and is like, um, you should get married so that you don't feel bad anymore. And then it, the narration is like, even though he mostly prescribed nerve tonic to married <laughs> women. And it's like, the story is very... This, both stories, like both Flora's life um, in Friend of My Youth, the unmarried life where it's like her big misfortune is that this man keeps on not marrying her. Um, and, but obviously she has way more, she, she has half a house to herself. She can decorate it how she likes. She, like the sister who does get married, you know, dies young after a series of traumatic pregnancies that never result in live children. And, um, like clearly getting married is not just like a ticket to an easy life in any Monroe story, but let's say these stories in particular. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there is a feeling that there's like, that there's some misfortune, whether you're chosen or you're not. And I think that I had seen this and I watched a YouTube video. It was about, it was like an interview around her, um, her Nobel Prize, and there was a question in it. The interviewer said, do you want women to read your books and become inspired to write? Um, which is such a, like, flattening Monroe into, like, 
housewife turned author. I, I have seen that. Nobel I've Prize seen winner. that interview. Or like a yeah. public, like a public good or something. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, like like oh, if any person of any degree of education, if they happen to be female, any degree of inspiration, if they just write down their life events, it will come out like an Alice Monroe story. Oh my god! I was like, I think that. I have believed this like kind of ghettoization of Monroe's stories as being rural and about specifically female powerlessness. Mm. I was like, I don't think that's what she's talking about. No, I don't yeah. think that's only what she's talking about. I think it's a much more universal thing that she's setting in this one place in time. Yeah, I don't mean to suggest in any means that like that, that is the the sum of her work. And I have, I've watched that interview and it is yeah. kind of appalling to be yeah. honest. Like, yeah, it's sort of like now. And, and, and that dynamic is something that really dogged her for her entire career, especially early in the sixties and seventies, perhaps unsurprisingly, is just like local housewife finds time to win literary award. And it is just like, <laughs> Oh my God, this is, you know? Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, there's that, like, I guess kind of famous um, friends and piece in the New York times about, mm. uh, I guess it was when runaway came out, it was about runaway and about how she's just like super brilliant writer that no one reads or they don't take it seriously enough. And I was thinking, even even while you're saying people are not taking this seriously enough, I still don't think you're taking it seriously enough. I agree. I I, I can't imagine anyone who actually studies these stories doesn't walk away just floored. Especially anyone anyone who is trying to write, trying to write short stories, especially. I can't imagine reading these stories and not being anything other than just fucking gobsmacked. I mean. They're unbelievable. And the one that we're talking about right now is so funny in, in a way that is the summaries of the poems. I, I couldn't even, <laughs> I, I have to read one of them. I'm sorry. This is a summary of a poem called the passing of the old forest, a list of all the trees, their names, appearance, and uses that were cut down in the original forest with a general description of the bears, wolves, eagles, deer, and waterfowl. What like there's no way she wasn't laughing writing that. I mean, a general description of the bears. What are we talking about here? What is that poem? Like, yeah, there I is mean, a I think back when Best American they used to have write, maybe they still do this. I oh, can't. in the back where they'd explain yeah, or whatever. Explain. Yeah, yeah. So Monroe, uh I, I tried, I, I wish I had this on hand, but she describes, she's like, Oh, I found a bunch of these. I had this idea. I wanted to write about this like sort of like 19th century poet um, that were often in these small towns that have sort of, some of them have survived. I couldn't find one to my liking. So I made one up, but she describes these poems as I think her exact phrasing is mediocre at best. Like it's, <laughs> she's kind of like mean about it. She's like, Oh, these were terrible poems. I love but it. I love it. There is, um, <laughs> Yeah, I I I wanted to call it one thing um, about like Monroe the technician, which oh, yeah. um, one thing that she really loves to do, and it's 
really fun to watch her do it is um, watching her use dialogue to um, change the texture and actually use it as a transition device. Mm. Um, and so there is a, a moment in the third section and up until this point where getting a lot of, um, it, it feels very distant, sort of like a historical thing. Um, you're kind of at a, at a third person remove. It almost feels like, or there, there is this sort of his, historian narrator who's relaying everything. Um, and um, she's describing how the salt is mined out of the earth. Um, and this is uh, Jarvis Poulter, which is a great name, describing yeah. to Almeida how the salt is, is um, mined out of the earth. Then the brine is pumped to the surface. It is poured into great evaporator pans over slow, steady fires so that the water is steamed off and the pure, excellent salt remains, a commodity for which the demand will never fail. The salt of the earth, Almeida says. And it's just like that, that like the whole texture of the story for me changes immensely because we've been in this sort of hypothetical kind of like, oh, I'm relaying this historical stuff that I could get from the old newspaper and from, but the second she drops in dialogue, and it is also, I think like 10 pages in, first line of dialogue. When, as a reader, I lean forward, I'm just like, oh, now we're in the story. Like, okay, now, now I'm like really deeply invested in it. And that she can hold off that long and that the story really does change in its pace and shape after that one pretty like anodyne, you know, kind of boring line, the salt of the earth. That to me is the like sort of the, the technical mastery that she is able to do because she knows exactly what she's doing. She's like, I'm going to bring you much closer to this. And then you're going to, after that, you lose this sense of, oh, I'm getting this from a historian. Like I do, I'm just yeah. in the story until she comes back in the end. And I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> I was deep in history. What's happening? And then she's like, no, nah, I'm at the graveyard. There's um, the same, there's the same kind of thing in front of my youth though. Like I, I just have to call it out real quick. Cause it's the first time you get dialogue from Flora. It's no, no, said Flora Greaves laughing at her. That doesn't mean you, you, you must just go on as you're used to doing. And then you're like, oh, like the terms of the story change immediately. Like, it's, yeah, it's like a very deft, a very deft move with dialogue always. It's the same way with Willie and I were talking about before the episode with, with the letter, the letters in front of my youth and then the poems in Manisatong. Um, you really only, you, 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 you only get what you need. She's never given you more. And then in front of my youth, even the most impactful part is a summarized portion when yeah the letter from flora to the the mother of the narrator is summarized you don't even get it the one that the one that is super impactful and i think if you think about the most impactful poems in Tongue, i mean it's just for a comic effect early on honestly the stuff that you get as interstitial is almost just placeholders i mean to me those could be dropped without much of an effect not going to edit um, monroe though well, I actually think the salt of the earth line is, I wanted to go back to that because it's, it's, it's funny that she, as a not especially good poet, would reach for such a conventional line. Mm -hmm. You know, like she's like, oh, there's a cliche about that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that that's what she, she puts in her dialogue. Um, and uh, I, I think that 
I guess just back to our former discussion of her lack of, I mean, we talked about this in our Chekhov episode, actually, just complete lack of judgment and lack of um, archness toward the characters where um, they're just allowed a lot of dignity in the feeling of inspiration. Um, even if we all know her poem is probably not going to be that good, that's fine. It doesn't, it's not wasted. The story doesn't allow us to, it's like the story is laughing at the situation in some ways, but it's not laughing cruelly. This is my sense. Yeah. It, if anything, it's, it's only Monroe only like kind of, um, she, it feels like she defends Almeida from like the, the arch sourceness, which is the newspaper, which is like, may we surmise about these, like, there is a sense of like dismissiveness. She's like, oh, this newspaper, it like sort of kind of is a little cruel and over, you know, kind of um, prurient. Like, and yet we get a lot of the newspaper. Oh, the, well, the newspaper is like clearly an incredibly important mechanical. <laughs> like, she's like, I need the newspaper because how else am I going to know what the hell happened? Um, it, yeah, this, this story is so interesting. And I'm so glad we get to talk about it because it really does feel like a pivot, like a gateway for her. Yeah. Um, because the stories that come after it are, um, really ambitious and very strange. And they do seem to, um, rely less and less on her personal history um, or if they do, it's kind of more subtly um, inserted and more and more on um, her like family history, like, you know, her, her ancestors who came over from, um, from Scotland. Um, and I, this is like one of those really interesting stories where there are, I feel like there are better historical stories that she writes later, but it's amazing to watch an artist like her crack something and be like, oh, I can do this now. And it's exactly what we were talking about at the very beginning of this when we were like, I hate when a writer is bulletproof and they do the same things. Like yeah. you can feel Monroe being like, I'm restless. Like what else can I do? Like I've already written about my, like my, my father and mother. Like what if I went back a hundred years and then you know, she ends up writing, um, yeah, the story I mentioned, um, Wilderness Station, but she also ends up writing um, uh, The View from Castle Rock, which is, I think, really underrated. It's so good. And it's full of, like, memoir and fiction and historical fiction, all these kind of hybridized things. It's a really weird book. Um, and I just, like, love it. And it would not be possible, I don't think, without um, Minnesota. That's fascinating. That makes me want to go read it. I do love a weird book. <laughs> it's, it's real. It's it's weird. It's uh -oh. real weird. Love um, a weird book. <laughs> Willie, I gotta uh, ask you. Sorry, Catherine. Can I real quick ask him? In the select, in the selected, mm -hmm. these stories are back to back. And I remember when you and I were talking. I don't have friend of my youth. Mm -hmm. You were saying maybe there's one story in between, but they 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 exist pretty close in their original publication in a book, right? Yeah. The the only story in between them is there's one story in between what's called five points. It's very good. I didn't pick any of the stories in which my thesis that I came to when reading all of her books over the last like seven months is she hates hippies. She just despises hippies. And this is Canadian. one of those stories where like hippies are bad. Uh, like 
the sort of <laughs> teens in the sixties of which, you know, at that point she was in her thirties. Sure. Can't uh, abide a teen. I can't get abide a teen, especially no. one newly experimenting with drugs. Um, no way. Uh, yeah. So, but the, and that, that story is also very, very good, I think, but yeah, these are the, um, the first two of the first three stories in that, in that collection, which did very, very well. Um, I think like Franzen's review where it's like, no one really reads her. I don't think that's kind of historically accurate. Like she got a lot of glowing reviews. I mean, like Levertov reviewed her second book, um, in like 1971 or something like that. Um, and progress of youth or sorry, progress of love, um, got a lot of like glowing reviews. She was like, routinely compared to like Carver and Peter Taylor and William Trevor. Like she was very firmly established um, as like, by the time friend of my youth comes out, what you're seeing really is her at like, I think the peak or close to the peak of her powers. Um, And maybe Franzen's right that like, it took a little bit for people to catch up, but it was established well before runaway. I I think. I think that too. I well before runaway, I, definitely felt like she was kind of, you know, on every bedside table, mm-hmm. like just, you know, household name among households that would name people like her. That was my sense. Totally. There's so little figurative language in these stories. Uh, and yet the images are so lasting. Um, especially when the narrator's mother in front of my youth is leaving for the final time, see Flora. Um, the last my mother ever saw of her was this solitary, energetically waving figure in her house, cleaning apron and bandana on the green slope by the black walled house in the evening light. I mean, to me, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. But the work she's done to set up Blackwalled House. I was I was gonna notice is, those words also. Is just amazing. Um because it's actually unpainted wood. It's not really black. Hundred percent. And and the and that I think you could even make an argument that the the blackening could fall within the mother's misunderstanding of what happens in that region doesn't matter it's it works um but green slope (laughs) field preacher she gets so much out of these kind of there's a certain quality to um just just pairings like that green slope field preacher i don't know what a field preacher is and yet when i when i hit that at the end of friend of my youth i i utterly understand it's perfect i get it um her stories have that in spades where I may not be familiar with the landscape and yet I am familiar with the landscape now um, because of uh, how direct and and stark these sentences are. Yeah. on Alice Monroe. Thank you so much to Willie and Alex and to Adam Bear for our music. As always, thank you to Literary Hub for hosting us. 
We love hearing from listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next week.